to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leopold. Thank you for joining me today. So on today's episode, we're going to continue looking at examples of lesser magistrates throughout history. Last time, we looked at an example from the Bible uh, regarding Jehoiada, the priest, uh, resisting the, the tyranny uh, and the usurpation of the throne by Athaliah. We also looked at um, the Emperor Caligula and the governor Publius Petronius, who um, was trying to stand up for the Jews against a particularly harsh and cruel command by the emperor. But before we continue with our examples, we're going to cover our law or passage of the day. Today it's a law. Today it is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, and here it is as follows. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. All right, that passage, which probably seems a bit odd or, or striking to us today, has to do with the issue of unsolved murders. Now, looking at it historically, Israel would have had a very decentralized government. This is before they had a king that this law was, was given. So in that period, they had towns and cities that were ruled by essentially the elders, the, the chief men of the town or the city. And um, yeah, there wasn't really much of a central government to investigate um, or to handle issues that, or crimes, I should say, that took place outside of the city or between cities. You also would have had a high amount of privacy and very limited witnesses. The, the law of God does require that uh, two or three witnesses be determined in order to find someone guilty for a crime. So an issue like murder, um, which is probably going to happen out in the fields, out in the woods, away from the town, you're just, you're just not going to have many instances where you have witnesses. So what do, you, what do you do about that? How do you deal with unsolved murders, right? Because if, if you don't do anything about it, it could just get out of hand. You just keep seeing these murders take place because there's just not enough of a government presence and observation of witnesses to stop it. 
Now, God always demands atonement for the shedding of blood. One example we can think of is the issue of Cain and Abel, where when Cain killed Abel, God even says that the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. So here, in this law, the nearest city or town of Israel was held to be responsible, which is logical given the fact that a person is probably, if, if they're going to commit a crime, um, they lived in those towns, they lived in that area, they're not going to go too far to do it. I mean, obviously you could get away from that, you could find a way around this, of course, but that would require a lot of planning and a lot of thinking. But the whole point, though, is that the town that is closest to the crime, if it's not solved, that town is held responsible. So the elders are supposed to take that pristine heifer, never yoked or worked, and essentially they would purchase it together probably. It doesn't say how they would acquire it, but they would have to get it somehow. Maybe maybe it belongs to one of the elders or they bought it uh, there. So it's probably coming from their own personal funds. They are the leaders. They are responsible for what happens in the territory of their town or of their city. And even if even if someone did come from far, far away and committed a murder in their vicinity, they're still responsible. They are the covenant heads of that, ta- of that territory. They're responsible. And they would take this heifer, and they would break its neck, and it would be offered as a sacrifice. And the religious leaders or the priests would go with them because they were the judges of the land. So the elders are obviously the civil magistrates kind of executing the law. But the judges, the priests, are the judges over the law. They're the ones that actually determine whether someone has violated God's law. So not only were they to take a pristine heifer, they were to take that heifer to a pristine place, an untouched uh, area of the territory, with running water, unworked fields, basically a wilderness, if you would. And maybe that territory would belong to an elder, or to a citizen of the town, or just be empty territory. And the elders would swear before God and before the priests, the judges, that they did not do the murder and they did not see it happen. And they're washing their hands over the dead heifer to symbolize their innocence and their lack of knowledge. And of course, they just lost that part of their property. If They, they paid for that quite expensive animal. Uh, at least one of the elders did, or they probably pitched in their, their money. So how do we apply this law? Well, it's one thing to keep in mind that Communal responsibility is important, and it's geographic in nature, by the way. It's, it's, it's based on proximity to towns and to facilities. You know, as a, home, as a homeowner, uh, the, the owner of the property is responsible for what happens on his property. Okay, wherever the property line is, that's, that's the domain of the property owner. So we see this just playing out on a more broad level with regards to town or city or country, right? And leaders need to take responsibility for their people. Even if they didn't do it themselves or they didn't see it happen, if it happened on their watch, on their property, they have to absorb the cost and they take the oath and they take the responsibility. So they don't, they don't put that responsibility on their people. Uh, they, as the leaders, are responsible. And it gives them an incentive to solve crimes, right? To not leave crimes unsolved. And, of course, if the leaders themselves are corrupt, they're the ones that are doing the crimes or 
letting the crimes happen under their watch, um, they're bringing curses upon themselves by what they're doing, and God will see that and judge them for it and judge the land for it. Now, interestingly, there are modern examples. I say modern, but there are examples in Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Norman, so Old England's laws. And in fact, in the 1100s, there was a concept uh, from the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans regarding this communal responsibility, and it was called murdrum, and it was the murdrum fine, which was related to the word murder. And essentially, the king, who's head of the land, would impose a fine upon a town or a village for unsolved murders, and it was paid for by the leaders of the of those villages, of the of the town, and one of the one of the ways in which they divided the land was per hundreds, so they would call it a hundred, and a hundred is basically the amount of land that could support a hundred families, and that land would be governed by various elders or nobles or or whatever, right? And it, it would be based on the size or location of the town as well. So you have different municipalities and burgs and whatever you want to call it um, in England. And essentially, that's how they would divi- divvy up responsibility. Uh, and again, it was an incentive to resolve murders. And if that town didn't resolve it, the leaders of that village or that town had to pay a fine to the king. So when we look at the principles of the law, the point is that when Israel paid the fee, they lost that wealth. It was basically given to God. I mean, they they killed the heifer. It was out in the wilderness. Um, That wealth is lost. And that functioned prior to the monarchy. There's no higher authority um, over the elders of that town than God himself. So under the Anglo-Saxons, which is under a monarchy, that was given to the king. The king received the fine. Because the king is to act as an intermediary. His job is to represent God to the people and the people to God and to ensure that justice was being done in his land. And so when it wasn't, he was going to hold the leaders accountable for their particular territory. So bring it to the modern era. Um, our culture does believe in corporate justice. Every culture has the concept of corporate uh, justice, but it misapplies it, right? Because if they're not using God's standard, they're using some other standard, man's standard or whatnot. Now, the Anglo-Saxons were were developing their standard from God's law, interestingly enough. So, um, and we, of course, inherit the the background and the culture from the Anglo-Saxons, a lot of what we have today. But the point is, is that scripture is to be the guide. There are limits and boundaries on corporate responsibility, and it ensures that responsibility is on the leaders, not on anybody else. So that is our law of the day. So I encourage you to think about how we might apply that um, in our modern era. All right, moving on to our main topic, which is that of examples of lesser magistrates. We're going to move forward out of the Roman Empire to the time of the Reformation. And we'll look specifically at the example of the city of Magdeburg. But before we do that, we have to get a little bit of a background and context as to what's happening here. I'm sure many of you have heard of Martin Luther, who posted his 95 Theses, kind of kicking off the Protestant Reformation. But 
what happened after that, years after, four, four years after the 95 Theses, was the Diet of Worms, which is in 1521. Now, any diet was basically a gathering of the nobles, a congress, if you will, in the Holy Roman Empire, which is modern-day Germany. At the time, it was just a loose confederation of various principalities and kingdoms um, that had their own nobles and, and rulers and leaders, and they were under the authority, ultimately, of the Holy Roman Emperor. That's kind of a, a brief rundown there. So, in the Diet of Worms, the Emperor Charles, he's the new Holy Roman Emperor, he wanted Luther arrested for heresy, and he charged him as a notorious heretic and essentially declared anyone an outlaw who assisted or defended or joined Luther because the emperor is Catholic and he's trying to uh, be close with the Pope and he also wants to keep the empire completely unified uh, religiously to avoid any kind of weakness, right? Now, there was a prince, uh, Frederick the Wise, who was the elector of Saxony. And just to give you a brief, a brief rundown, um, an elector is someone who elected the Holy Roman Emperor. So it was not, it was not a monarchy necessarily. There were six electors in all of the empire, and whenever an emperor died, those six electors would choose who would be the emperor, the new emperor. So Frederick the Wise is one of the electors, and his territory is that of Saxony. But Frederick essentially kidnapped Luther and put him in protective custody and held Luther in the Wartburg Castle for several months. And that's where Luther translated the New Testament to German. So that's kind of how the Reformation kicks off and spreads from there. But later on, a few years later, in 1526, is the, another, another diet. It's called the First Diet of Speyer, where the nobles and the leaders, again, of the German states all gather together, and they're debating on the issue of religion. Now, at this time, there are a decent number of them that are Protestant, or that are following uh, what Luther was arguing for. And the emperor, though, he wants the Diet of Worms enforced. He wants heretics to be killed, not just Luther, but anybody who joins with the Protestant faith. But the council votes to hold off on doing that, and they declare that they're going to wait until a later council, a specific council on religion, is formed. And that in the meantime, each prince or territory um, is allowed to worship as it feels led to do so. And so that is the first Diet of Spire. Three years later, we have the second Diet of Spire, which didn't go so well for the Protestants. The emperor wanted to annul the first Diet of Spire and advocate for no religious freedom, and again, the enforcement of Worms. This time, the council, which had a majority of Catholics, uh, voted to do that. They voted to ignore the first Diet of Spire, to basically go against what they just agreed upon three years earlier, and 21 cities essentially were Catholic or joined with the emperor, and 14 cities disagreed with the emperor. They did agree to keep things as they were, so if they were Protestant, you could stay Protestant, but no more. No more Reformation, and Luther needs to be arrested and killed, and anybody else advocating for, for that needs to be killed. 
The Protestants felt betrayed. They argued that a previous council can't just be annulled, uh, just outright. They filed an official protest with the emperor, uh, and they argued that in matters of conscience, the majority does not have power to dictate to the minority. This is where they earned the name Protestant. Protestant is not a reference to protesting against the Catholic faith or against the Pope. It's actually a political term where the Protestant princes, uh, under the laws of the Holy Roman Empire, could file an official protest to the emperor. Anyways, so a year later is the Diet of Augsburg, another, another convening of the Congress of Nobles. And this one is to address the matters of religion. The Protestants are commanded to produce a statement of faith, and they do. Um, it's the Augsburg Confession of Faith. It was drafted, presented to the emperor, and he wanted them to just write it and not read it, but they chose to read it out loud anyways. The emperor says he will consider it. The whole purpose of this gathering was that the Protestants would make their statement. The emperor, um, it would, well, the emperor would decide whether it was acceptable or not, and the Catholics could debate it. Now, the Catholics are commanded to make a response to the Augsburg Confession of Faith, and then the emperor would decide between the two. It took several weeks. Eventually, the Catholics did produce a document. They had to rewrite it several times because the first time they were just kind of insulting the Protestants. But the second time, they just kind of just reaffirmed the Catholic position and didn't really engage the Protestant arguments. Um, so the Protestants believed it to be not sufficient at all, and the emperor didn't really pay attention when they read it. He, uh, there's arguments that he was falling asleep. But the point is that he disagreed with the Catholics, and he said that the Protestants were defeated, and that the Protestants can't reply, and they can't publish their confession of faith. So this did not end very well. This, this diet, it led with several Protestants leaving in protest, um, which was pretty rude from the eyes of the emperor. But the emperor was also threatening to um, arrest any Protestant nobles who did not comply and to essentially wage war against them. So things are becoming really, really heated. So as the pressure mounts, the Protestants form a defensive league. And this is called the Schmalkaldic League, and it was formed in 1531, so about a year after Augsburg. And they agreed that they would come to each other's aid defensively if they were attacked by the emperor. They promised to um, provide 10,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry uh, to protect if the emperor decides to attack them. And they're particularly concerned that the first Diet of Spire was not being honored. Um, and they were very firm that it could not just be annulled like that. Now, this league remained in place and was very defensive for about 17 years. And they didn't engage in any attacks against the emperor uh, for 17 years. Now, 17 years later is the Schmalkaldic War, where Luther had just died of natural causes. And the emperor, who had just finished beating up the French and the Ottoman Turks, decides to finally deal with the Protestants. And so he declares the League to be illegal. I mean, 17 years later, he declares the League to be illegal. The Protestants see the war is coming, and they prepare defenses, but they disagree on where to mount the defense, uh, what location, and they're not really coordinated. They don't really have a, a chief commander or uh, just someone who's overall in charge of combat operations. So the emperor launches a surprise attack against them, and they are defeated. 
and their leaders, one of them is Philip of Hesse, is captured. And at this, at this point, the emperor enforces what's called the Augsburg Interim in 1548. He orders all Protestants to adopt Catholicism. So we're done with, we're done with Protestantism and no more religious liberty. So we're going to force unity amongst the empire um, regarding religion. Now here's where we get to the city of Magdeburg. Because Magdeburg stands alone in refusing to adhere to this Augsburg Interim by the emperor. They uh, publish a confession of faith and a statement of intent. Uh, the pastors of that city support the city leaders. They're going to remain Protestant. The city has chosen to be so. And they are prepared to defend their people. Uh, and they inform the emperor that they are not the aggressors here. And this is one portion of what they state towards the emperor. They say that the magistrate is an ordinance of God for the honor to good works and a terror to evil works, Romans 13. Therefore, when he, the magistrate, begins to be a terror to good works and to honor evil, there is no longer in him, because he does this, the ordinance of God, but the ordinance of the devil. And he who resists such works does not resist the ordinance of God, but the ordinance of the devil. But they say this while also pointing out that they would be, and they want to be, the best citizens of the emperor. They want to serve him as long as he stops acting this way, stops doing the ordinance of the devil, stops being a terror to good works. And they say this, we will give the greatest possible number of men who, if they be able to enjoy their own religion, will declare their obedience to you in all owed and upright duties and loyalty without hypocrisy, perhaps more than all those who say they are obedient to you. So they don't want to just rebel. They do recognize the authority of the emperor, but they want the emperor to recognize the authority of God in matters of conscience. Anyways, they inform that to the emperor, but the emperor doesn't really care. He sends an army to lay siege to the city, and the siege lasts about a year. It ends up that 4,000 imperial troops, so the emperor's army, uh, 4,000 of his army die, and around 500 soldiers from Magdeburg die. But the city wins, and is granted freedom of religion. Now, one of the reasons why it does win and that the siege is broken is because one of the leaders of the imperial army is himself a Protestant and decides to switch sides. His name is Maurice of Saxony. Um, he was a Protestant noble leading the imperial army, but he was moved by the conviction of the city and his own personal views as a Protestant. He's all, he was also upset with the emperor's behavior because his father-in-law was Philip of Hesse. Maurice's father-in-law was Philip of Hesse. And the emperor was very much mistreating Philip of Hesse, who had been captured and imprisoned after the defeat of the Schmalkaldic League. So Maurice decides that the Protestants, and particularly the city of Magdeburg, is right, and that he's wrong for using the sword to violate their conscience. And so Maurice... And his uh, soldiers switch sides, and they attack the imperial army, and they drive it away. And here, the emperor is defeated, and he himself is almost captured there and has to flee. But interestingly, this behavior results in the emperor granting religious freedom. In the Peace of Fasal, which is in 1552, so about four years later, the emperor grants religious freedom. And this is officially codified in the Peace of Augsburg in 1555. 
where basically whatever territory wants to be Catholic can be Catholic. Whatever territory or, 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 or prince or noble wants to be Protestant can be Protestant. And now Germany will have religious liberty um, amongst its territory. So in this example, we see the conviction of the city of Magdeburg. God ultimately grants them victory and they're enabled to continue with their with their religious worship and they're brave for doing it and ultimately the tyrannical behavior of the emperor um, is stopped and resisted and it causes him to grant peace so that is really an important concept in the doctrine of lesser magistrates because you can protest all you want to and you can offer your prayers of course you should always do that you can flee if you must certainly you can but a lot of times, the greater magistrate, his, the check on his power is going to be performed by the lesser magistrates. And sometimes when, when things come to, come to arms and come to fighting, that's how you get the greater magistrate to, to take a pause and to stop doing uh, what, what he's doing, to stop being tyrannical and becoming more tyrannical. I'm going to stop here for now because we're running out of time. But next time, my plan is to go through more in detail the Magdeburg Confession of Faith, which I mentioned that the city of Magdeburg and the pastors wrote to not just the emperor, but to others around them, including other Protestants. I think it's a very, very important document, very useful in understanding the concept of lesser magistrates and a biblical view of resistance and civil disobedience. Anyways, I hope that you found this episode useful, and if so, please feel free to share it with a friend, co-workers, family. Um, on Twitter, you can search for the GBG Podcast or Governed by God. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram um, and Gab and other places as well. As well. So please, uh, all, all those things are helpful, the thumbs up, the stars, the reviews. If you want to support the show, you can go to Patreon. Uh, dot com and look for Governed by God and become a monthly supporter. That would always be greatly appreciated. Uh, looking to get this uh, podcast out to more folks. And lastly, if you have any questions or want me to cover any topics or had any pushback that you wanted to offer as well, you can email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com and I'll happily get back to you as soon as I can. So thank you again for tuning in and until next time, take care and God bless.